Jodcast, flying through space debris to get straight to your radio, with Naomi Asabri Frimpong, Claire Bretherton, Ian Harrison, Fiona Healy, Minnie Mao, Ian Morrison, and Francesca Pierce. The Jodcast, December 2016 edition. Hello, and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Fiona, and joining me in the studio today are Francesca and Naomi. Say hi, guys. Hi. Hello. You've heard Naomi in the Jodcast before, but Francesca is new to us today, so this is her first Jodcast recording. So, Francesca, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Francesca. Um, I've just started my PhD at the University of Manchester. I'm working on simulations of galaxy clusters and trying to get some cosmology out of that. So we'll see how that goes. Cool, nice. Who's your supervisor? Uh, I'm working with uh, Dr. Scott Kay. Oh, lovely. Welcome to the Jodcast. Tremendous fun. So in the show this time, I've got Minnie Mao interviewing Professor Ray Norris about Emu, and Ian Morrison and Claire Bretherton are taking a look at what's happening in the December night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Ian with this month's news. In the news this month, shimmering radio bursts, the roundest object in the universe and life in dino-killing craters. Another first was revealed this month in the fast-growing field of fast radio bursts. These FRBs have featured quite a few times in the Jodcast since they were first discovered in 2007. The incredibly bright pulses of radio wavelength light last for a fraction of a second and are highly dispersed, meaning the time the light arrives depends heavily on the frequency of the radio waves. Such large dispersions mean that the FRBs are almost certainly from outside of our galaxy, which, when paired with their high brightness, means they must come from extremely energetic events. Since the first description, there have been 17 so far announced, although more are definitely lurking on various astronomers' hard drives. The newly announced 18th FRB, called 150807 after the date of its observation, is interesting for a few reasons as detailed in a new paper by a team of scientists led by Vikram Ravi of Caltech in the USA and Brian Shannon of the CSIRO Institute in Australia. Firstly, it is the brightest yet seen, with a flux of 120 Janskis, only a factor of 100 or so times fainter than the entire Milky Way at that same wavelength. Secondly, the FRB has the lowest amount of dispersion so far seen, 266 parsecs per cubic centimetre. This dispersion measure is still much larger than the 70 expected for a source within our galaxy in the direction of the FRB, but suggests that the FRB is the closest so far observed. Because the FRB was so bright, the astronomers were able to see it in two different pixels of the detector attached to the Parkes radio telescope in New South Wales, Australia. The two different pixels correspond to radio waves bouncing off slightly different parts of the telescope, which have different efficiencies. By knowing the shape of the telescope response and comparing the brightness of the FRB in the two different places, they were able to approximately reconstruct where on the sky the burst came from. Localising FRBs on the sky is somewhat of a holy grail for the new class of object. If we know where they are, it is possible to look for events which are at different wavelengths of light, but coincide in either position or time, meaning we could learn which star or galaxy the FRB came from, and hence how far away it is, or whether the bursts are associated with other short-lived but violent events, such as gamma-ray bursts. The astronomers showed FRB 150807 probably came from a region on the sky with an area of about 9 square arc seconds, about the size of Mars on the sky. 
This might seem like a small area, but the sky is a crowded place, and there are at least three stars and six galaxies we know of in the area that the burst could have come from. Even if we do not know exactly where FRB 150807 came from, it does have the ability to teach us about the region of space it travelled through to get here. By looking at how the brightness of the FRB changed as a function of wavelength, the team were able to see a phenomenon known as scintillation. As the light from the FRB travels to us, it passes through the intergalactic medium, or IGM. This IGM consists of a highly dilute plasma of free electrons and negatively charged ions. Exactly how much of it there is floating about in space is a very interesting question, because the IGM gives off so little light it is very hard to observe, something which FRB scintillation can be very helpful with. At the moment, each FRB is still special, but as we see more and more of them, they will become valuable tools for astronomy and possibly even cosmology, and rather than talking about individual ones on the Dodcast, we will be able to tell you how they teach us about the universe. Also in the news this month were observations of the roundest object ever seen in nature, the object is a star known as KIC 11145123, but I'm going to call it Kick as I refrain from calling the FLBs Furbies. Astronomer Laurent Guizon of the Max Planck Institute for Sonnen System Forschung in Göttingen, Germany, led a team who used the Kepler satellite to observe tiny fluctuations in the star's brightness. Kepler is usually used to spot exoplanets by looking for these changes in brightness as the planet passes between us and the distant star, but the sensitivity can also be used for other means. Kick belongs to a class of stars known as hybrid pulsators, whose brightness subtly pulses due to wobbles in the material making up the star. Monitoring these changes in brightness over long periods of time, astronomers can spot the oscillatory patterns as different density waves propagate through the star, just as earthquakes do on Earth an analogy which gives the field its name of astro-seismology. By looking at nearly four years' worth of Kepler data, the astronomers were able to see how the different waves propagated in the star, which, amongst other things, depends on how round it is. Kick was found to be almost perfectly spherical, to one part in one million, with a difference of only three kilometres between its radius drawn from the centre to the poles and the radius between the centre and the equator. In a star which is more than 3 million kilometres across, which is about twice as wide as the Sun, this is not much. As well as setting new records, we can learn a few interesting things from this astro-seismology about the composition, behaviour and environment of stars. Things rotating slowly tend to be rounder, as do things which have their shapes constrained by strong magnetic fields, with the team hoping to perform their analysis on many more stars in the future and use these observations to learn more about star formation processes. And finally, rocks recovered from deep within the Chishalub crater were shown this month to have properties ideal for supporting microbial life. However, supporting microbes is scant compensation for dinosaurs, and 70% of all species on Earth at the time, who were probably wiped out by the rock which impacted the Earth and created the 110-mile-wide 12-mile-deep crater some 66 million years ago. The Chishalub crater is unusual on Earth as it has an inner ring of rock peaks as well as an outer one. Such inner peak rings are observed on other solar system bodies, 
appearing more common as the size of the crater grows, but it is difficult to investigate the mechanisms by which they form without having access to the rocks themselves. A group of geologists have recently been able to drill down into the Chichilub crater for the first time, recovering from under 1.3 kilometers of sea and rock a set of cylindrical cores. Analyzing these cores showed evidence that the inner peak rings are formed from rocks dredged up from deep below the surface by the impact, and were also far less dense and more porous than expected. Such porous rocks are excellent at hosting microbial life, and the scientists suggest that they may have provided an excellent shelter for life during the early periods of its blossoming on Earth, when our planet was subject to regular large impacts, which would otherwise have created a very harsh environment. Thanks for that, Ian. Now, Mini interviews Professor Ray Norris about Imo. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name's Minnie, and I'm very excited that I get to interview my uh, PhD supervisor, um, Professor Ray Norris. So, hi, Ray. Hi. <laughs> um, did you want to just tell us a little bit about yeah, yourself? Yes, so I got my PhD here in Manchester at Jodrell Bank many years ago. Only Bronze Age. Well, I'm told maybe it's the Jurassic. But anyway, <laughs> um... Were there really dinosaurs when you did your PhD, Ray? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I was a postdoc here for a while. And um, then I moved to Australia, and uh, I was involved in building the Australia Telescope Compact Array. which has been a, a fantastic workhorse over the last 20 years or so. The best telescope in the world, really. <laughs> uh, oh, it's got some contenders like Merlin, actually. <laughs> <laughs> e Merlin. Um, and right now, the thing that really excites me, I think probably the most exciting thing I've done in my entire career is coming out towards the end of my career, uh, and that's the Australian SKA Pathfinder Telescope, which is a brand new telescope that we're building in Western Australia. How much are they paying you, Ray? I see you're also wearing an ASCAP T-shirt. <laughs> Uh, yes, yeah, so I'll hold my shirt next to the mic so you can see it. Um, uh, it really is very exciting. I mean, in the, in the entire history of radio astronomy, with all the radio telescopes in the world, we've just discovered about two and a half million radio sources. Right? That's all of all our knowledge of the radio sky is about two and a half million radio sources. Uh, with my project EMU on the ASCAP telescope, we're going to increase that to 70 million. So in one experiment, I say one experiment, it takes a couple of years, but uh, with this one project, we're increasing our knowledge of the radio sky by a factor of about 30 you know so that is actually pretty cool you know i don't know what we're going to discover you know we know we're going to discover all sorts of new things it always happens as soon as you observe the sky in a new way you know you discover new things you know is it going to be pulsars quasars dark energy well no it's none of those things we already know about those but there'll be we know almost something there's going to be something else that we discover and we can't guess what it is ray norris explorer of the unknown yeah so can you back up a second for mm, us ray sure. tell, tell us where you work you you, you said oh, you're in australia <laughs> yeah so i, I moved to Australia uh, and I joined CSIRO which is the note to our listeners Ray has made a point of not telling us when he moved to Australia yeah, I'm not there may to... have still been dinosaurs back then uh, that's right <laughs> um, so CSIRO is the government research organisation right CSIRO in, in there's not a, an exact UK equivalent really okay um, and then just recently earlier this year I, I uh, left half time I've moved to uh, a university in Western so Sydney. if I understand correctly you attempted to retire but <laughs> yeah. failed I, I, I'm not very good at this stuff on the front, yeah. uh, so i ended up working half time at csiro and half time at western sydney university so uh, good which, job which so now great. you have twice as much work that's right yeah. <laughs> so so my, my, my work in both both places is to get emu going right emu yeah. so that's what we were talking about before i interrupted you and that's what you're giving your colloquium on today that's right, yeah so emu stands for evolutionary map of the universe that's so an excellent is, name <laughs> it is rather um and uh, uh and it, it gets so uh, it gets known in several places so emu is an aboriginal constellation which maybe we'll talk about in a minute oh really 
named after this main Aboriginal constellation. That's our logo. Um, and uh, also yeah, evolutionary map of the universe. That's what we're doing. We're mapping the universe in a way that lets us see the evolution of radio sources. So how many more? You said before, 30 million? Radio- so, so 70 million radio sources. And right yeah. now we only know two and a half million radio that's right. sources. Yep. Wow. Yep. Yep. So it's pretty exciting. And, and the idea is that you know we, in our puny human lifetimes, can only get a snapshot of the universe. We can't see things changing with time. We don't live long enough. So how can we figure out how the universe changes with time? And what we want to do in EMU is we take snapshots for these 70 million galaxies. It's a bit like DNA sequencing. You then try to figure out what order, because you've seen them in all these different stages of evolution, and you try to put them together in a sequence. There's actually going to be different, lots of different sequences. And try to see how galaxies evolved from the earliest stage of the Big Bang. Uh, that doesn't make sense. From the Big Bang through to the present day. So that sounds terribly exciting, but I feel a little like you're yanking my chain here, Ray. Mm-hmm. I did my PhD with you, and something I remember very clearly is with radio continuum observing, we can't get a distance measure. So oh. how are you going to map the evolutionary sequence of these radio sources? That's what people used to think in the olden days, like when you did your PhD so long ago. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> so one of our, yeah, I mean, but you're right. One of our challenges is, um, so we're, we're looking at all these different radio sources. We know they're different periods of time in the evolution of the universe. Um, we need to know their redshift. In other words... Their distance how, measure. The, basically their distance and also how far back in time we're looking. So something 10 billion light years away is taking 10 billion years for the light or radio waves to reach us. Right. And so we're actually seeing it 10 billion years ago in time. So just 3.8 billion years after the Big Bang. So we really are looking back in time. And, and yes, you're right. The challenge is how do we measure that redshift? So optical astronomers do it by measuring a spectrum, right. seeing how, how the light is shifted and they can measure it. It's much harder in the radio. And I think a few years ago we were saying, oh, it's really hard. A uh, 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 mate of mine, Jim Condon, made this famous statement, there's nothing so useless as a radio source. <laughs> by, by which I mean, if you've just got this blob of radio emission and that's it, it really doesn't tell you very much. So you really want to dig in It's and why see people what else. call it blobology. That's right. Well, we don't do... Well, we try not to do blobology. <laughs> So, for example, if you observe over a wider frequency range, right. you find there is information there. And we're developing techniques to measure radio redshifts of sources. How? Using the spectral shape? Yes, the SED. So, but, but radio SEDs tend to be very... It's a power lot, isn't it? You've got, I, I need to show you my plot. I can't do this on the radio. <laughs> my talk, I'll show you. But, yeah, if you've got, only got narrow bandwidth, you see... Um, it's a well-known fact that if you join the two points that you've measured, that almost certainly fits a straight line right? well of course <laughs> okay. even with three points maybe but if you go right out in frequency you look at the low frequencies with telescopes like LOFAR and the MWA then you see the spectrum turning over right if you go to high high frequencies uh, like 20 gigahertz uh, then you see the spectrum falling off the right. electrons running out of energy now actually high frequency observations are really hard to do but a fair fraction of the EMU sources we will be able to see with low frequency telescopes so we will see that characteristic turnover and that gives us some idea of the redshift. Now we're not going to measure it to four decimal places like the optical people do, but we actually don't need to do that. For what we want to do, what we really want to do is take the radio sources and put them into bins. We don't need to know exactly how far away the source is or exactly how old it is. What we want to know is, uh, is this source in uh, the last five billion light years or is it in the next five billion or five billion after that? So um, for cosmology, we have many science scholars, one of them is cosmology, and we found that if we can take all our radio sources and measure um, cross 
cross-correlation functions. I'm trying to think a non-technical way of saying cross-correlation functions. But we, we, we measure the structure of the, the, the shape of the distribution of the radius. So you're getting a low-resolution age of the yeah, source. Yeah, exactly. Is that yeah. how you measure your age, Raymond? <laughs> I have to use low-resolution. <laughs> 10 plus Although, or minus an I, order I, I of magnitude. I've out of decimal places. Otherwise. <laughs> um, uh, that's right. So um, if we can put all our radio sources into a few bins, for example, it turns out the cosmological tests we can do with EMU turn out to be really powerful. But it depends on getting just a rough redshift, but doing so it like, well. So is that what they call statistical redshift? Yeah, that's right. That's, that's fantastic. Right. That's so exciting. Yeah. And uh, so we'll be able to measure with EMU if all that works out. And of course, always oh, in science, there's question marks. You don't really know whether things are going to work out like you think but if it all works out um we hope to be able to detect for example yes we'll see dark energy and things like really else. dark energy yeah we should come back to that right and um but more interestingly not that dark energy is not interesting it's just that's not actually the thing that emu is best at what emu is going to be best at is measuring two things firstly uh deviations from general relativity so does our knowledge of gravity does it really work over large scales right and you might say well that, yeah sure that's fine that's dotting our eyes crossing no it's much more that what could some for example brain world models from string theory predict that uh our universe is a brain like a membrane right and there are other universes and that gravity leaks between these brains and if that's right then over large distances you should see deviations of gravity from the inverse square law that we measure on smaller distances and emu we can actually detect that really so we we're, yeah we're, we're, how it, it, uh, it's, it's buried in doing statistical things. i'll give you an example so there's several techniques we use one of them if i've got a low redshift galaxy a thing like the Andromeda Nebula something really Andromeda nearby. Galaxy Andromeda I think galaxy, <laughs> yeah. and, and we're looking at the EMU sources which are a long way away at high redshift on the, on the whole behind it and the gravitational field from Andromeda does two things because you, you get gravitational lensing right so it does two things to the background sources firstly it makes them a bit brighter right so, so if we're measuring that emission yep how many sources we see per square degree we'll see an increase between okay. nearby galaxies but it also pushes them further apart so we get fewer sources per square degree and the cosmic the gravitational lensing distorts space oh, and yeah. pushes them okay. apart and so you've got these two effects working in opposite directions and it's like subtracting two very large numbers right. and the difference is very sensitive to what goes into those numbers and that depends on general relativity now actually Andromeda is really local Andromeda would be useless it's too close but uh, you go to a galaxy a bit further away right. but nearby relatively nearby within the, you know, a few uh, a billion light years or so and and um, a few billion light years. And um, and they really have a big effect on the uh, galaxies behind that we detect the EMU. So all we need to do for this test, we just need to take our EMU sources and put them in two bins. We don't want the nearby ones. We'll just throw those away. So we say, okay, let's get all our EMU sources. Anything below, let's say, a redshift of one, we discard. Anything above a redshift of one, we keep. Right. And then we go to an optical survey like the Sloan or SkyMapper or Taipan. And take the nearby, no, they're our nearby sample. And we, you know, don't actually have to look at how these background sources move you actually do a cross correlation between the near ground and the foreground okay and our simulations that we've done on this effect show that we're actually going to be really sensitive to deviations from general relativity on large scales that's so why are the radio sources better than using the deep optical because like we go the sds field yeah we go much deeper than that so uh, optical surveys on the whole don't go very deep except on very small areas right so like they, the hubble deep fields or the ultra deep fields. yes exactly so those, those really deep fields go very deep okay. over very small areas 
is. So, But radio um, isn't limited, so you can see right out to the edge of the universe. That's right. So the average galaxy in EMU will have a redshift of about one and a half. Really? Whereas that's okay. that, even that's an average galaxy, and that's already into the So that's well over half, over half the age of the universe. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. That's really neat. Another thing we can detect, same sort of te- uh, technique, is the noise that is in inflation. So we know the universe started a big bang, and right. it suddenly, we think, it suddenly blew up with inflation, and that at the end of inflation, it wasn't perfectly flat, it had little bits of noise in, and those noise, that noise is actually what leads to the structure we see in the universe today. And the question is, is that noise just ordinary Gaussian noise, something you hear on the phone, you know, or is there some structure to it? So if, if for example, supposing the, the early universe had cosmic strings, which is a type of a singularity, uh, that actually shows up in a pattern in the noise, and it turns out we're actually very sensitive to the making measuring that noise as well. Really? Again, doing these cross-correlations and things like that, and that, that's called the non-Gaussianity test, and we think we're going to be able to have a really good stab at that as well. That's fantastic. So, your the title of your colloquium, it was... I don't know, do you know? I don't remember. I've got it written it, it down. It is something like WCF question mark colon um the colloquium today is titled wtf question mark extracting the science from emu right i I was a little concerned it seemed a little bit risque to swear in the title of your colloquium three perfectly normal letters in the english language Um, I must have misunderstood. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about WTF? Yeah, so um, one of the interesting things in EMU, I said right at the beginning, that um, in EMU, like many science projects, of course, we've got a number of science goals. I just talked about that, a couple of measuring non-Gaussianity uh, and, and so on. We're going to see how galaxies evolve and things. And we understand how to do that. And we think we're going to make important steps forward. And that's how a lot of astronomy is. It's incremental steps, valuable steps. But you also know that when you do a big survey like EMU, often you stumble across things you didn't expect to find at all. And history shows, yeah, pulsars quasars, dark energy, and so on. So what is the pulsars, quasars, dark energy that we find in, in EMU? Well, we don't know, obviously. How are we going to find them? That's interesting. So you look at something like how pulsars were discovered. So Jocelyn Bell was a student at Cambridge, and you know, she's looking through her data, and she found these bits of scruff. Little so green men, right? Yeah. So, but you look at the things that went together to make that great discovery. So event, and she discovered pulsars. And uh, didn't win the Nobel Prize. Her supervisor got the Nobel Prize. That does not sound fair. a supervisor of several brilliant students. I think this is an excellent idea. <laughs> <laughs> when they make great discoveries, I should get the Nobel Prize. That seems fair to me. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, but yeah, she, so she was persistent. She was right. She knew her instruments and she's very familiar with the data. Right? So can we do this with our scat, with EMU? And I think the answer is no, actually. The trouble is we have something like 70 petabytes a year wow. of data coming off ASCAP. That's a lot There's of no, MP3s. Um, so if, <laughs> if, we, if we recorded the data from ASCAP onto Blu-ray discs, right. the pile of Blu-ray discs each day, we put them all in a pile, that pile of discs would be 62 kilometers high wow <laughs> from one day's observations <laughs> right so students aren't going to be going through the data right <laughs> Um, well, not if you like your students. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so how are the Jocelyn Bells of this world going to find the discoveries in the data? And it's hard. You just can't sift through the data. There's too much of it. What you can do with the data, we've got very good tools for asking very dark questions like how do we measure non-Gaussianity? And we right. do these statistical tests, you know. We know how to do that. What we don't know how to do is how do you discover the unexpected stuff? And that, I think, is one of the big challenges facing astronomy right now. Because do you know that 
if you look at what telescopes actually do, most of the dis big discoveries are actually unexpected. If you look at the discoveries from Hubble, so there's National Geographic a few years ago got a panel to rank the 10 top discoveries from Hubble. So, right. you know, they've got dark en discovered dark energy, stuff like that. And you rank these top 10 uh, discoveries. Then you ask, how many of those discoveries were part of the justification for building Hubble and launching it? Right. Millions of dollars. How many did they plan to make? The answer is one. Out of the 10. Yeah. So 90% of the discoveries of Hubble were completely unplanned. So if you build a telescope and all you do is discover the things you were planning to discover, you've actually only got 10% of the potential discoveries of that telescope. So WTF is an acronym. Yeah. So what we do <laughs> when we're looking for these discoveries, we're looking for outliers, things that aren't like the things we expect to see, the statistical outliers. So WTF stands for Wide Field Outlier Finder. If you thought it stood for anything else, what did you think it stood for, by the way? Uh, nothing at all. <laughs> all I, right, okay. I I had no preconceptions. <laughs> oh, right. boy. Okay. We'll leave, leave the listeners. Wasn't to... I your PhD student when you came up with WTF? I remember sitting in your office, shaking my head, saying, Raymond, that is a terrible acronym. <laughs> Actually, it's, it's one of my better acronyms, I think. One, one of the th it's funny, you think it doesn't, it's a bit of fun, right? And you think it doesn't actually matter. So we, um, uh, Amazon, uh, Amazon Books, they're also one of the biggest providers of web services and cloud computing. Right. Uh, so Amazon Web Services very kindly gave us a grant uh, to develop the WTF project. Right. And they gave the grant of uh, you know, disk space and CPU cycles and so on. And so, um, which is very nice of them. We've used it to good effect. Um, what, what really amused me was there's a, some magazine had an article about our project, about right. WTF. And they got picked up by somebody in Amazon. And there's this lovely uh, stream of tweets on, on Twitter of you know, executives in Amazon saying, why am I involved in a project called WTF? You know, and, and, so on. and just having a, a name like that, it catches people's attention, actually. So, I understand that. that. I study are... spiral dragons. Right. <laughs> so names are important. What's in a name? Yep. <laughs> That's really neat. So you said that WTF is one of your better acronyms. To be perfectly honest, I quite like EMU. E but if I understand correctly, ASCAP, and just for the record, I, I think ASCAP is a very odd acronym. It sounds a little odd. Um, <laughs> right, okay. But, by, by the way, EMU wasn't entirely mine. Uh, it's also Jim Condon. Are we, are we were, I forget the exact process, but I know that... Um, I think you sent out an email. This is like way back in 2010 or so. I was a PhD student. That, and you yeah. sent out an email saying, well, we're going to be doing this amazing project. What are we going to call it? So what happened there? Do you want to just tell us that story? You, you probably remember better than I do, I think. I remember you sent out the email. Yeah. And I remember walking to your, into your office and you being really excited that Jim had sent you EMU. And yeah, but he, he had silly words for it, I think. He he said, because he knew about my interest in Aboriginal astronomy. Right. And he said, why don't you give it an Aboriginal sort of thing like EMU? A great idea, Jim. Obviously, that's what we should be doing. And I forget the words he suggested, but I didn't know that good. And, and I, I think I filled in the words. <laughs> Sorry, Jim. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. This is how collaboration And if I understand correctly, almost all the ASCAP Pathfinder projects are named after Australian animals. Well, a fair number of them are. So, so did that all start? I think it all started after Emu. I, I think we probably started the ball rolling, and then yeah. Don't ask me Wallaby. So Wallaby is the other big project on ASCAP, but don't ask me what Wallaby stands for. So Wallaby's the H one project to Emu's continuum. Yep, that's right. So uh, Emu and Wallaby are the two key projects that are really driving ASCAP. Right, and they're, they're sort of partner projects. We're doing the continuum, and Wallaby are looking at the hydrogen galaxies. Right, and then there's a number of smaller projects. There's Possum, uh, which is the polarization project. Right. The original suggestion for that was Armpit. <laughs> I just thought it was the worst acronym I ever. I think that's fantastic. And, and I, was, I was part of that project. I, I'm not going to be part of a project called Armpit. Um, Raymond, you're so superficial. What's in a name? <laughs> 
well, a project by any other name may not get funded. <laughs> no. okay. um, but uh, yeah, so Brian Gainsler was giving this talk about armpits. I, I was... remember that. Everybody referred to Brian Gainsler's armpits. <laughs> That's right. And I sit in the front row. <laughs> I, I, so I, I, I have no idea what Brian Gainsler was talking about because I was working on acronyms. <laughs> and so it got some questions at the end. And I said, what about possum instead of armpit? <laughs> Polarization, um, rotation uh, methods. Something sources. Because yeah, armpit was, I think, as kept rotation measure something, something polarized else, intensity. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's also a dingo. Dingo, yep. And that's looking uh, for neutral hydrogen very far away in the universe. It's a very deep neutral hydrogen. How does survey. that compare with wallaby? It goes deeper than wallaby in a smaller area. Okay. Yep. Wallabies go deeper than... No, dingoes go deeper than wallabies. Yep, that's right. Yep. Got it. And um, I'm probably missing some of the... I think the other projects don't have Australian animals. Well, obviously <laughs> nobody remembers them then. Actually, I was just... Um, and of course you have the Taipan spectroscopy survey as well. Oh yeah, that's the complementary <laughs> optical survey. Yes, right, yeah. So yeah, no, recently, as you know, Bjorn Iman's put in a proposal that he titled koalas, which right, makes me quite happy. So, Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Oh, we're taking over today. <laughs> right. So um, you had a acronyms there, and I think you also had a whiskey-related acronym earlier on in your career. Mm, yeah, Are we not allowed to talk about that? Probably best not. We, 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 had a, we had a project called Lagavulin. Are we allowed to <laughs> talk about commercial products? Anyway, it's called Lagavulin, and, uh, which is a very nice malt whiskey. And, uh, and that was uh, a joint Australian-US project to look at uh, the links between star formation What did Lagavulin stand for? I don't remember. <laughs> uh, low luminosity active galaxies using VLBI something, something, something. <laughs> but then um, somebody, one of our team, uh, Charlene Heisler, objected to it. She, she was teetotal and thought it was wrong. And we, we renamed it Cola. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> uh, compact objects and low-power AGM. <laughs> that's a lot more... Um, I suppose that's more age-friendly. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> How interesting. Um, so the other thing I wanted to ask you was that you said with EMU you can measure the dark energy content of the universe. I mean, mm. that's what, like 75% of the universe? Yeah. H- how? We know nothing. I know nothing about dark energy. I mean, just to briefly sum up what the known, the visible universe or the known universe, the mass that we see is like from 4% and then dark matter is, I don't recall. I, I forget the numbers offhand, but yeah, it's something like that. Um, so what, what we're doing in EMU, we're, so we're looking at these galaxies with black holes holes in, right? So a lot of the science of EMU is understanding how the black hole interacts with the galaxy. But things like this, the cosmology, they're just using the galaxies as test particles. And these test particles are spread throughout the universe, going right back to the early days of the universe. And so we know that the universe, in the absence of any other forces, these things on average are going to be uniformly scattered throughout the universe. And so what we actually do is we use these to measure the shape of the universe. So any deviations from uniformity we know isn't going to be due you know, to God put more black holes over here than over here. We know that's going to be a distortion due to the universe. So we're using effects like that. So, so you're assuming it's smooth and even to yeah, begin with. Is that, that, that a that's, fair that's assumption? Right. Yep, that's right. Okay, yep. that's interesting. And so, uh, and going from there to the actual numbers, I'm afraid it's just maths. I mean, I, I described the cosmic magnification by a nearby galaxy. That's the sort of thing. I'll give you another one if you like. If uh, There's a thing called the integrated Sachs-Wolf effect, which is where you get a supercluster and photons from the Big Bang coming through the supercluster get accelerated and then decelerate as they come out again because of the gravity of the supercluster. And in a 
flat universe, that completely cancels. If you've got dark energy, then as the photon is going through the cluster, the cluster is expanding and accelerating, and that gives you a net increase in energy of the photon. Wow. And so to measure that, we cross-correlate the microwave background from Planck with our galaxies, and that tells us about the dark energy of the universe. And we can actually measure, in principle, we can measure how that changes with time over the life of the universe. That's very neat. So I would like to go back to something else you said right at the beginning. You said that the emu is an Aboriginal constellation. Mm. So if I understand correctly, you're one of the world experts on Australian Aboriginal astronomy. I think the real world experts are the Aboriginal people themselves. My bad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But did you want to tell us a little bit, um, recently, I think on a previous podcast, we talked a lot about, uh, we talked about Maori astronomy. So would you like to tell us a bit about Australian Aboriginal astronomy? So it's been really interesting. The the last 10 years, I've been studying Aboriginal astronomy as a sort of sideline. How did you get into that? Really, I, I think I was curiosity driven just i when i lived in england i was very interested in megaliths you know, stonehenge and things bronze age astronomy in britain and uh so i think the curiosity just carried over when i moved to australia i didn't realize how far it'd take me what i mean by that is that so yeah 10 years ago i started studying aboriginal astronomy people had written bits and pieces in the literature and that, that was all good stuff and i wondered um how deep did it go you know i we knew there were aboriginal stories about the sky that's fine that's good lovely stories um did aboriginal people really do astronomy in the sense of trying to understand the sky did they try to under- use the sky the motion of the sun and the moon to predict eclipses or measure seasons so i like suppose that. what you're doing here is you're defining what is astronomy yeah, in its most uh, basic uh, sense exactly yeah. and um so i thought oh yeah it'll take a year to answer that question you know <laughs> And 10 years later, I now realise we've hardly scratched the surface. <laughs> and um, so the uh, uh, the answer is, firstly, that astronomy is incredibly important in Aboriginal cultures. And, and that's I don't think anybody appreciates how widespread, how deep it goes in many Aboriginal cultures. It's one of the oldest professions, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, I think when I was a summer student, or maybe just after I started my PhD, you took me on a, a bushwalk to Kurungai National Park, and you showed me all of those beautiful rocking grapes. Mm. that were very old or we weren't sure how they were dated or not sure how old they are so yeah i mean one of those is the emu in fact which is um there's this beautiful engraving of an emu which we think is a picture of the emu in the sky i say we think i mean it actually lines up in the sky with we'll try and get a picture of that on our website okay that'd be really good yeah and um and we found that people yes people explained eclipses they explained how the tides were um had all these descriptions of how the world works based on their astronomy. They're using it for navigation. Can you give us an idea? So the Australian Aboriginals came to Australia 50,000 years About, ago. Well, maybe more, but yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. wow. That's right. And the we don't know when they started doing astronomy. Um, it's interesting because they're almost untouched by other cultures. So we know that 200 years ago when the British invaded Australia that they were doing astronomy, right? 200 years ago. Right. How far back does it go? We don't actually know. And that's one of our holy grails. You know, how far back does it go? Um, certainly goes back a fair way. It's possible if they've been doing it for a long time it, their astronomy may, may well predate Stonehenge and so on. Wow. They may be the world's first astronomers but we, we can't say that for sure. And I know you've taken me to see some putative stone circles in Victoria. Um, Not putative. They were so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the, 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 some gets called Aboriginal Stonehenge, which isn't quite right because, well, first of all, it's not an imitation of something else. It's right. its own thing. But it's, it is a stone circle about 50 metres across, uh, which is actually quite clearly aligned on the setting points of the sun at the solstices and the equinoxes. So oh, the guys who built yeah. this, the Wotong people, um, uh, clearly knew about the position of the sun. Actually, there's an, an interesting uh, um, local connection with Macclesfield, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. So the people who built that stone circle, the Wotong people, um, 
William Buckley was a convict from Macclesfield um, who escaped in Melbourne. I forget the dates. It's like 10 or 20 years after the British arrived. And he spent 30 years living with the Watong people. Wow. Um, when he eventually turned himself in, so to speak, to the British again, he'd actually completely lost his English. He now spoke uh, Watong. Really? And, wow. And, and, and so he almost certainly participated in ceremonies at the Stone Circle at Wadi Yuang. Right. And and the bugger didn't write about it. <laughs> he I talks know. about lots of things. He actually talks a bit about astronomy. Uh, he talks about um, their names, the Magellanic Clouds and things like this. Wow. But he doesn't mention <laughs> Wadi Yuang. If, Maybe uh, he wasn't allowed to. Maybe there were... Possibly, but he lived this. there 30 years. My guess is he would have been initiated. Right, no, but maybe he wasn't allowed to tell non-initiated oh, people. That, that's quite possible. Yes, you, you yeah. could well be right. So uh, unfortunately, we've actually run out of time, which is a shame because I'd love to hear more about Aboriginal astronomy. And I know you've written a book. I've got a signed copy at home. <laughs> um, and we'll also um, link it, hopefully, to the website. Um, and if you have any more questions for Ray, do write in, let us know, and we'll make sure to ask Ray anything you'd like to know about Aboriginal astronomy. So yeah, thank you so very much for this, Ray. It's my pleasure. It's great fun. Thank you. Thanks for that, Minnie. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. Okay, so I'm going to go first with my odd and end. My odd and end today is an article I found on space.com about a, a UFO. This is the headline that they used to get lots of people to click it. A, a UFO that crash landed in Myanmar. I mean, to say crash landed isn't even correct. It just crashed. <laughs> um, in fact, it's not even a spaceship. It's kind of a bit of something. It looks a bit like a rocket or a jet engine. And in the picture, you can see that they, it's kind of, um, it's like a long sort of cylinder thing that looks like it broke off some other thing. And the opening of the cylinder is probably about as tall as I am, which is about five foot four. Um, <laughs> I can tell that because they've got a dude standing next to it. Uh, but he looks taller than me and he's sort of crouching down a little bit. Anyway, uh, it crash landed um, near a mine in, in Myanmar, kind of a remote mountainy area. So it's very fortunate that nobody was hurt. And they don't really know what it is. Villagers said they woke up, they heard lots of loud banging and vibrations and they were terrified. Uh, it's about 12 feet long and 5 feet in diameter. Oh, look, my, my estimation of height was, was almost bang on, actually. <laughs> uh, it did rip through a jade miner's tent, but it seems he wasn't in there at the time, so that was lucky. For was very that. lucky. <laughs> and uh, there was a smell of burning filling the air. Oh, that's according to local reports. Was that the ten or I don't know. Or was it the was it UFO? The yeah. I mean it looks a bit charred, I guess I guess it, falling through the atmosphere does that. Yeah, it'll do that, yeah. 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 <laughs> and so so at first they kinda of thought maybe it came from an aircraft and they, they figure it's some kind of engine and they found some bits of copper wire and stuff in it. But it looks more like someone else has said one former government official with the Department of Aviation has said that the image shown on Facebook you can see he's doing a very detailed analysis there. <laughs> he says from Facebook, he gathers uh, that it looks more like a rocket booster, but I'd have to agree with him. It kind of looks like it's very big and it looks too long to be a jet engine, but then what do I know? So yeah, and then they mention, apropos of nothing, that just yesterday China announced the successful launch of a Long March Rocket 11 into space along with five satellites. Which, what do they mean by that? I doubt it's one of those. Because <laughs> if it's one of those, then you couldn't exactly call it successful. But I think what they're kind of going on to say is we're launching an awful lot of stuff into space. And 
sometimes it comes back down. <laughs> or things fall off. <laughs> or things fall off. <laughs> exactly. And that space debris is, um, you know, becoming a bit of a concern and you know, a bit of a thing. Oh, wait, wait, wait. The thing China was doing, it's meant to identify the locations of other things in space. So that'll be useful considering space is getting full of bits of junk that fall down on the tents of unsuspecting jade miners. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, so apparently, apparently then, the odds, this is important to know where these things are, because the odds of any one of us being hit by space debris are approximately 1 in 3,200. That's huge. Yeah. How many are we on Earth? Uh, there's seven billion of us. So, so like, watch out, people. Yeah, yeah. Wear your helmet when you go outside. It's a fashion statement as well. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> you can wear your tinfoil hat underneath. <laughs> um, I feel nice and safe here in the Jodcast recording studio. We've kind of got lots of nice blankets and carpets and tables to hide under, lots of kind of soft furnishings. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we'll just camp out in here for the rest of time. Must <laughs> go Jordan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's it, regarding space junk. So now on to you, Naomi. Okay, I'm talking today about the development in Africa with radio astronomy, which is codenamed DARA project. The SKA in Africa is a really big project for Africa. Africans are so eager to be part of it. And you know, South Africa has a lot of partners in Africa, like Ghana, Kenya, right. Madagascar, Mauritius, okay. Mozambique, Namibia, and Zambia. So the DARA project is training young scientists to take up the job opportunities that come out from the escape project. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. So. Oh, excellent. Actually, I don't know if this was SKA related, but I know some people from, from JBCA were in two African countries, and I forget which two, to teach people radio astronomy. Yeah, for the past two years, the DARA project is training African scientists. Uh, they have like a two-point uh, approach. The first one is training them in their countries, yeah. So, like, a very intensive um, four, two weeks program. Uh-huh. So, they teach them astrophysics. Yeah. Um, technical, the technical side of astrophysics or radio astronomy mm-hmm. and then observation and data reduction. Right. So, they are taking uh, basically undergraduates and master students. Oh, that's wonderful. With physics, mathematics uh-huh. and uh-huh. engineering and computer science backgrounds. Uh-huh. And also have the advanced training, which I'm part of. Okay. okay. So, currently, there are six of us in the UK, uh, one PhD right. student in Oxford, and three master students in Hertfordshire University, uh-huh. one PhD in Leeds, and I'm in the Manchester. And in Manchester. And oh, I'm Manchester right. University. So oh, it's, cool. it's really great. Yeah. Um, we are all being trained to go back and work on the various telescopes being converted in our, in our countries currently. So it's really a, a very important project for Africa. That's wonderful. Yeah, and we are really eager to do you know, and wonderful for Africa and wonderful yeah. for radio astronomy because yeah. if there were more radio telescopes in Africa um, in that whole continent, like mm-hmm. the, the possibilities for expanding baselines um, yeah. would be marvelous. Marvelous for, yeah. Yeah. for both the, SK, the, the whole SKA project. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In UK, the PI is Professor Melvin Hall. Okay. From the University of Leeds. And uh-huh. in South Africa is Professor Ludwig. Right. So is it like expected that you'll go and work out back in Africa after you've finished your training? Like yeah. you'll go and actually yeah, work going back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, so, so they sent you over here to, to, to learn some us. new tricks. <laughs> <laughs> so we're all going back. Um, so I'm going back to Ghana to work on the, ah, the so cool. antenna that's being converted to a radio telescope um, in Kuntusi. So 
all of us are really going back. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah, so it's a really great oh, project. Cool. I, I, and I think it's it's recommendable. And they should, it shouldn't be only two or three years. It should continue okay. into the future because we really need more. And are there people. plans to send more than the six of you? Yeah, yeah. I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. But currently there are only six of us. But I hope in the years to come, they'll send more than six of us. That would be amazing. Yeah. That's really cool. That's really wow, cool. Thanks, thanks for telling us about that. And yeah. uh, to any of our uh, Jodcast listeners... Um, Anywhere in Africa, I hope I hope you're listening. <laughs> yeah. So I really thank um, the Dark Project. It's a really brilliant idea. Mm, yeah, that's cool. That's yeah. cool. Mm. Okay, uh, on to you, Francesca. So my odd and end this week was that um, they think they might have discovered a new supercluster oh. um, out in the southern sky near the Vela constellation. No, it's known as the Vela supercluster because it's beyond, well, in the area of the Vela constellation mm-hmm. on the sky. Mm-hmm. So for any Southern Hemisphere listeners, they might have seen it. Yes. So well, probably not the supercluster, because I'm guessing you can't no, see No, I meant the constellation. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, no, that is actually quite a good point, because they haven't actually managed to see this supercluster, because it's in the zone of avoidance. So basically, it's along the line of sight of the galactic plane, so we can't actually get any measurements from the centre of this potential supercluster mm-hmm. because all of the galaxies and dust and stars in the way mask any observations that we try and do. Okay. So um, it was proposed in around 2008 that this cluster or extended mass region might be there in order to stop discrepancies between the peculiar velocity of our local group of galaxies, which they managing to get the correct discrepancies in the peculiar velocity of our local group of galaxies because the current known supercluster near us is called the Shapley supercluster, which is approximately 650 million light years away. The gravitational influence of that is coming up with different peculiar velocities than we're actually finding. Right, so they figured there had to be something else there. Yeah, but obviously there has been no direct observations up until the last like year, because okay. they've currently had a lot of telescopes pointed at it. Okay. At that area in order to try and get something. Right. And they found that it, the, um, this proposed supercluster is very extended. It's about 250 degrees by 20 degrees. So actually extends beyond the galactic plane. Right. Okay. So that's where we're getting most of our measurements from. Okay. So they can actually observe now that they know it's there. They can observe the outer regions of it. And just in the outer regions, they found that there are potentially 20 new galaxy clusters, which is huge. That's a lot of galaxy clusters. That's a lot of physics and cosmology that we can get out of them. Yeah, right. So what kind of of science? What kind of science can they get out of that? Um, Well, it's basically to try and put constraints on cosmology because galaxy clusters are thought we can get the... uh, like ratios of um, baryons to dark matter and things like that. So basically, yeah, and this, from the preliminary calculations that they've done, the size of this supercluster, which is about 800 million light years away, they think it might have a similar mass to the Shapley supercluster. So it does, they think, potentially account for the discrepancies in the bulk motion of our local group. And just as a side point, early next year, they've got follow-up missions with the Taipan observatory and also the south african sk pathfinder meerkat which are going to do observations on multi-wavelengths in order to try and get some even more physics out of this potential supercluster and hopefully they will be able to say for definite that it is a supercluster yes <laughs> cool okay well that's that, that, that's really interesting that's uh 
Um, the, the best of luck to them, I suppose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Hopefully they're right. Yeah, I hope they are right. Yeah, yeah. Anytime I hear something like this and they're like, oh, they think it accounts for such and such a discrepancy, yeah. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I hope it does. I hope they all get to have a little celebration when they uh, ultimately prove that they're correct. Okay. Well, so now, uh, taking us back from the Southern Hemisphere to the Northern Hemisphere, uh, here's Ian Morrison with this month's night sky in the Northern Hemisphere. The night sky for December 2016. Well, we have some lovely long nights now, so there's lots to see. And in the evening, you can't help notice Venus dominating the Western sky. And if you're up reasonably early in the morning, you can't help but see Jupiter becoming higher. And by the end of the month, it'll be basically due south after sunset. So it'll be easy to see. So what about the stars? Well, looking south after sunset, when it gets dark, there's not obvious to see. In fact, you have the square of Pegasus, the winged horse upside down. Up to its left is the constellation Andromeda, which of course includes the Great Nebula in Andromeda M31. Above that is the W-shaped constellation of Cassiopeia. And one way to find Andromeda is to take the rightmost V, the right-hand side of the W, and use that as an arrow. And if you take some binoculars on a dark night and gradually work downwards, you should see a little fuzzy glow, which is the Andromeda galaxy. As the evening draws on, things become a bit more exciting. First of all, you'll see Taurus rising in the southeast with that lovely open cluster, the Pleiades, highest in the sky. Below that, to the left, is the Hyades cluster with the bright star Aldebaran, not part of the cluster, but about halfway between ourselves and the Hyades cluster itself. And then, as the evening draws on, Orion will appear over in the east, the lovely constellation, the three stars of Orion's belt are pointers. They point upwards to the Hyades and the Pleiades, and down to the left to the brightest star we have in our northern constellations, Sirius. Over to the left and upper left of Orion, we have Castor and Pollux, the two brightest stars of the heavenly twins. And then working around a bit, fairly high up, there'll be a bright yellow star, which is Capella, which is in Auriga. The Milky Way passes through Auriga, and there are quite a number of open clusters that you can see, in fact, with binoculars on a clear, dark night. Well, what about the planets? Well, actually, I've been seeing Jupiter fairly high now in the southeast as I get up at about 6.30 to 7 in the morning. You can't really fail to see it. It's lying in Virgo. It rises at about 2.30 UT at the start of December at about 1 o'clock UT by its end. During the month, its magnitude rises a little bit from minus 1.8 to minus 1.9 magnitudes. And at the same time, of course, the angular size is increasing from 31 to 35 arc seconds. By the end of December, it will reach the meridian, that's due south, by dawn with an elevation of 35 degrees. Sadly, each year, that maximum elevation is getting less as Jupiter follows Saturn down towards the lower part of the ecliptic. So early risers should be able to observe the equatorial bands and up to four of the Galilean satellites as they weave their way around it. Well, what about Saturn? It passes behind the Sun on the 10th of December, so cannot be seen for much of the month. However, by about Christmas Day, it will rise 
about an hour before the sun and may just be seen in the brightening dawn at a magnitude of plus 0.5. You may well need binoculars to spot Saturn lying to the southeast and to the left of Antares in Scorpius. But of course, please do not use binoculars after the sun has risen. Now Mercury reaches its greatest elongation east, that's to the left of the sun, on the 10th of December, and may be spotted low in the southwest for the first two weeks of the month. Its angular size is increasing from 5.5 arc seconds at the start of the month to 7 arc seconds by the 10th. At the same time, its gibbous phase falls from 68 to 56% illuminated. It reaches magnitude naught on the 17th, but it's been moving back down towards the sun and so will be lost in the sun's glare by about the 19th or so. As it moves to inferior conjunction, that's between the sun and the earth, on the 28th. Well, Mars has been around for a very long time. It will be seen low in the south after sunset. It dims from magnitude plus 0.6 to plus 0.9 during the month as it moves eastwards into Aquarius from Capricornus on the 16th. Its disk is now only about six arc seconds across, so you can't really expect to see any details on what I think is a salmon pink disk rather than red. Now Venus is becoming increasingly obvious, visible now in the southwest after sunset, setting about three hours after the sun at the start of December, but increasing to about four hours after the sun by month's end. It's moving rapidly eastwards from Sagittarius into Capricornus, that's on the 7th, and brightens from magnitude minus 4.2 to minus 4.4, whilst its angular diameter increases from 17 to 22 arc seconds. Now, at the same time, the illuminated area of the disk falls from 68 to 56%. So the two things compensate, and that's why Venus's brightness stays pretty constant at around the 4.2 mark for almost all the time it's actually visible in the sky. Finally, what about some highlights? Well, on December the 3rd, should it be clear after sunset, you may be able to spot Venus below a thin crescent moon. Whenever there's a very thin crescent moon, and if the Earth is fairly cloudy, you have a chance of spotting what's called Earthshine, the old moon in the new moon's arms. And that's really rather a nice thing to see. So Venus will be at magnitude minus 4.2. On December the 4th, after sunset, you can see Venus, Mars, and a crescent moon together, looking low in the south-southwest. Obviously, a day later, the crescent won't be quite so thin. Now, a nice one. On December the 13th, before dawn, the moon occults Aldebaran in the Hyades cluster. So during the night of the 12th, 13th of December, the full moon will pass through the Hyades cluster and actually occult many of its stars. And at around 6.15 UT, it will occult minus 0.7 magnitude Aldebaran which, as I've said before, lies between us and the cluster. Now, it's right at the very edge of the lunar disk, so it could well be what's called a grazing occultation from parts of the UK and may not even be occulted at all from some. Well, we have two meteor showers this month. December the 14th and 15th after midnight, we have the Geminids, or the Geminid meteor shower. And in fact, that's become probably one of the most reliable 
in recent years. It always used to be the Perseids in August, but now the Gemini's tend to be better. And I saw an absolute wonderful display last year, in fact, on board ship in the ocean not far from Brazil. Sadly, this is not a good year for the two nights when the peak of the Gemini's occurs, simply because it's very close to full moon and the fainter meteors will not be seen. However, as I saw last year, the Gemini's can often produce what are near fireballs, perhaps not quite a fireball, but pretty damn bright. And in fact, it's therefore still worth observing. You'll certainly see those if they happen. Obviously, an observing location well away from towns or cities will pay dividends. The relatively slow-moving meteors arise from debris released from the asteroid 3200 Phaeton. This is unusual, as most meteor showers come from comets, and the radiant, which is where the meteors appear to come from, is close to the bright star Castor in the constellation of Gemini. And on the night sky page, put in night sky Jodrell Bank, there'll be a chart showing you where the radiant is. Obviously, if it's clear, it'll be cold, so wear a woolly hat, wrap up well, and perhaps have some hot drinks with you. December the 22nd and 23rd, in the late evenings, we have the Ursid meteor shower, and that implies that the radiant lies in the constellation of Ursa Major. It's actually close to the star Kokab, in actually in Ursa Minor. So look northwards at high elevation. Occasionally there can be a higher rate than the typical 10 to 15 meteors per hour, which isn't really all that much. But pleasingly, the moon will not affect our view until really the early hours of the early morning. So you have a chance at least of seeing some of them in the hours up to and beyond midnight. On December the 30th, the night of the 30th, 31st, after sunset, Venus closes on Mars. In fact, Venus has been catching Mars up in the sky and it's closest this month, as you might expect, on the 31st. So have a look either on the 30th or the 31st and you should see Mars in Aquarius to the upper right of Venus, both of them fairly low in the south-southwest. Finally, the Alpine Valley on the Moon. I, I do like observing and imaging the Moon. It's an easy thing to image because it's so bright. Those two nights, the 6th and the 20th, are good nights to observe what is called the Alpine Valley, if you have a small telescope. It lies close to the limb on those two nights. And it's a little cleft within the Apennine mountain chain that marks the edge of Mare Imbrium. It's about seven miles wide and 79 miles long. A thin rill actually runs through its length, which is really quite a challenge to observe, and I can't claim ever to have seen or photographed it. So over the next two nights, following the sixth, as the Terminator moves round towards full, you can see the dark crater Plato and the young crater, Copernicus, in view. And also, around the top, just round to the left of Plato, a rather lovely region called Sinus Iridum. In fact, not Sinus Iridium, it's Sinus Iridum, the Bay of Rainbows. And when the Terminator crosses the bay, the mountains on the left-hand side are lit up. They look a little bit like the backbone of a dinosaur. So let's hope we have some nice nights to observe the heavens during December. And of course, Happy Christmas and New Year. And thanks for that, Ian. 
And for our Antipodean listeners, here's Claire Bretherton with the night sky where you are. Kia and welcome to the December Jodcast from Space Place at Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. After a bit of a cold, wet, windy and somewhat shaky November, we're finally moving into our summer months as we head towards the Southern Hemisphere summer solstice on the 21st of December. Our eastern evening sky is now dominated by our summer constellations of Taurus, Orion and his two dogs Canis Major and Canis Minor. The summer Milky Way stretches through these constellations and along our southern horizon. Although not as bright as our winter Milky Way, we can still pick out the mottled glow of bright and dark regions when observed from a dark location. The bright regions are the combined light of the many distant stars that form our galaxy whilst the dark patches are clouds of interstellar gas and dust that block the light from more distant stars. Throughout this region there are many star clusters and nebulae that can be observed with binoculars and small telescopes, and some that can even be seen with the naked eye. We'll take a look at some of the best examples in our Jodcast this month. We'll start our tour in Orion, sitting high in the east after dark. In Greek mythology, Orion is a hunter and the arch-enemy of our winter constellation, Scorpius. The two continually chase each other around the sky. As Orion rises in the east to dominate our summer skies, Scorpius sinks down below the western horizon. Orion lies along the celestial equator and can be seen at least partially throughout the world. As he was invented in the northern hemisphere, in New Zealand we see him upside down. Orion is easy to find by the three bright stars that form his belt. Here in Aotearoa, we call these Totoru, meaning line of three. Above Orion's belt is a line of faint stars which form Orion's sword in the northern hemisphere. For those of us in the southern hemisphere, we see the belt and sword instead as a pot or saucepan. At the top left of the constellation is the bright blue-white supergiant Rigel. Whilst Rigel has been given the designation Beta Orionis, it is in fact normally the brightest star in the constellation, and the seventh brightest in the night sky. In contrast to the blue of Rigel, at the bottom right of Orion is the red supergiant Betelgeuse Alpha Orionis, the second brightest star in the constellation. Betelgeuse is a star that's coming towards the end of its life. As it runs out of fuel to burn, it has bloated out and cooled down, giving it its wonderful red hue. Estimates of the mass of Betelgeuse range from around 8 to 20 times that of the Sun, and if it were placed at the centre of the solar system, its surface would reach out almost as far as the orbit of Jupiter. One day soon, Betelgeuse is going to end its life in a supernova. Of course, soon to astronomers could be a million years or more, but if it does go bang within our lifetimes, it's sure to be a spectacular sight, perhaps becoming so bright you could see it in the daytime. At a distance of over 600 light-years, it is possible that this explosion has already happened, and we're just waiting for the light to reach us. Orion contains a number of interesting objects to observe with both the naked eye and binoculars or telescopes. If you look carefully, you may see the middle star of Orion's sword has a fuzzy appearance. This is the Great Nebula in Orion, or M42. The Orion Nebula is a stellar nursery a huge cloud of gas and dust in which new stars are being born. At around 1,344 light-years away, M42 is the closest massive star formation region to the Earth, with around 700 stars in various stages of the star formation process. In the heart of the Orion Nebula is a small group of bright stars known as the Trapezium Cluster. The ultraviolet radiation from these stars is lighting up the surrounding gas. 
Whilst easily spotted with the naked eye, through binoculars or a small telescope, the nebula is a wonderful sight. Take your time and you should be able to clearly see some of the nebulosity of M42 and the bright star cluster that lights it up. Another nebula in Orion that is well worth a look is the reflection nebula M78, easily found as a hazy patch in a small telescope. With a larger telescope, the famous Horsehead Nebula, silhouetted against the emission nebula IC434, is a lovely sight, just to the south of the star Alnitak, the easternmost star in Orion's belt. Its proximity to bright Alnitak makes viewing the Horsehead Nebula more challenging, but long exposure photographs will reveal much more detail. Alnitak is actually a multiple star system. The ultraviolet radiation from this star is illuminating a cloud of dust and gas, creating NGC 2024, the Flame Nebula. M42, M78, IC434 and NGC 2024 are all part of the Orion Molecular Cloud Complex, a vast area of young stars, bright nebulae and dark clouds spreading all the way from Orion's belt to his sword and covering several degrees in the sky. Following Orion's belt to the left, we come to an upturned V-shape of stars, marking the head of Taurus the bull. At the bottom of this V is the bright orange star Aldebaran, at around 65 light-years away, representing the eye of the bull. The other stars in the V are part of the more distant Hyades cluster. At 153 light-years away, the Hyades is the closest and one of the best-studied open clusters to Earth. It is estimated to be around 625 million years old. Over time, the cluster will continue to spread out and disperse into space, with some of the largest and brightest members already coming towards the ends of their lives. Near to the fainter of the two horns of Taurus, and just about visible in binoculars under excellent conditions, is the Crab Nebula. First discovered by English astronomer John Bevis in 1731, the Crab Nebula is a supernova remnant, now believed to be associated with supernova SN1054 observed and recorded by Chinese astronomers in 1054 AD. Continuing further around the sky, you come to another famous open cluster, the Pleiades, or M45, at a distance of 444 light-years away. This group of stars is even younger than the Hyades, and is dominated by a number of hot, massive blue stars, only around 100 million years old. The Pleiades has many different names in many different cultures, but here in New Zealand it is best known as Matariki, meaning little eyes or eyes of God. The rising of this group of stars for the first time before the sun, around June each year, marks the coming of the Maori New Year. Following Orion's belt to the right, you come to Sirius or Takarua, the brightest star in our nighttime sky, and in the constellation of Canis Major, Orion's large hunting dog. Canis Minor, the small dog, is a little below, close to the eastern horizon. Its brightest star, Procyon, is actually a binary star system, consisting of a white main-sequence star and a faint white dwarf companion. At just 11.46 light-years away, it is one of the nearest neighbours to our sun. From here, you can follow the band of the Milky Way around the sky, through the false and diamond crosses to Crux, the southern cross low in the south. Sitting beside the southern cross is a dark patch called the Colsac Nebula, a huge cloud of interstellar gas and dust about 600 light-years away. Known as a dark nebula, the gas and dust in this cloud are blocking the light from more distant stars, obscuring them from our view. To Maori, the Colsac Nebula is known as Tepatiki, or the Flounder. 
In our western skies, we see a trio of planets this month. Mercury is low on the southwestern horizon for the first half of the month, setting around an hour and a half after the sun before sinking into the evening twilight after the fifteenth. Venus is higher in the west, the first thing you'll see as the sky begins to darken and sets close to midnight. Mars is much fainter and to the top right of Venus, moving through Capricorn and into Aquarius over the course of the month. We also have a number of meteor showers happening this month. The Phoenicids reach their peak on the 6th of December and are thought to be associated with the comet D1819W1 Blanpain. With the radiant in the constellation of Phoenix not far from Achenar, this shower is well placed for southern hemisphere observers throughout the hours of darkness. The Phoenicids were first discovered during an outburst in 1956, where approximately 100 meteors an hour were seen from locations across the southern hemisphere. However, activity is very uncertain, and rates this year are likely to be much, much lower than this. The minor Papid Velids meteor shower also reaches its peak at around the same time, with a zenithal hourly rate of around 10. Just a few days later, peaking on the 15th of the month are the Geminids. This is one of the best meteor showers of the year, but we are not well placed for viewing in New Zealand, with the radiant in the constellation of Gemini and well north of the equator. The constellation is at its highest around 3 a.m., but still appears low in our northern sky. Due to this low height, we only see around half of the meteors visible to those in the northern hemisphere, but it's still well worth looking out for. Wishing you clear skies and a Merry Christmas from the team here at Space Place at Carter Observatory. Thanks for that, Claire. And now on to the feedback. So this month, we've received a postcard from Andrew Thomas, and it says, Dear Jodcasters, I have enjoyed Haratina Mogasani's Southern Sky Notes and Maori traditional stories. Inspired, I visited Mount John Observatory on South Island for a view of a really dark southern sky. Inspiring. Keep up the good work on the Jodcast. Jodon. Andrew Thomas. Ah, that's lovely. So that's all the way from New Zealand. That's really cool. I love it when we get posts. It's always exciting when we get some posts, and it's got a lovely picture on the front of it of a of a nice dark night sky. I'm guessing taken、uh, where Andrew Thomas is.、Um, I would assume it's taken from the observatory、yeah. on Mount John. Yes, it's lovely. Seems like it. Very good、yeah. picture. Gorgeous. Great. For this judgecast, there's no email. Oh, that's very sad. But we do have some Facebook.、Um, so we've got a message. From Vasily Galkin,、uh, who says, "Hey pals, hey pals!" As the October Extra episode has just gotten downloaded to my phone, I've realised that this November is seven years since I started listening to the Childcast.、Uh, so I've decided to just share my little story with you. He says he's far from being an astronomer, but he's a physicist engineer by education. I mean, that's not that far. <laughs> yeah, pretty close. <laughs> that that that's quite close.、Uh, working as a software engineer, and he has been listening to the Jodcast to help improve his English. So he says many things have changed in his life over、uh, the period in which he's been listening to the Jodcast. Got his bachelor and master's degrees at university. Become a professional programmer. Got acquainted to. His wife, and he's hoping to become a happy father in the coming months. Oh, that's lovely! Congratulations! Oh, gorgeous! A little child baby. <laughs>、uh, I hope you. Hoping to give you another update in another nine years. So yeah, hopefully by then you'll.、Uh, You'll be raising a young astronomer <laughs> who listens to every single episode of the Jodcast,、yeah. um, and it would be really fascinating to ever be able to see you guys in person.、Um, wow! Well,、uh, he's he signs off from、uh, Moscow. From Moscow, from snowy Moscow, with love.、Um, so I don't know if we'll ever if we'll ever do a worldwide Jodcast tour, but、um, I'm maybe... definitely up for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It would be cool. And Moscow is lovely. 
Oh, he gives special greetings to Matt, Megan and Jane, so I'll make sure those get passed on. In the event that we don't manage to pull off our worldwide tour, uh, <laughs> in about nine years' time, it'll probably be almost time for another live show, so maybe, Vasily, you could come visit us um, in, in Manchester for the, for the next live show. Okay. From Facebook, we also have Ben Dyer. He says, from Campaign 11 on Kepler, amazing stuff. Campaign 11 began on September 24th, but was interrupted for three days. To make a small point in correction to accommodate the imbalance that was created by broadcasting data from a different antenna on the other side of the spacecraft. Although the spacecraft is as big and heavy as an SUV, it actually turns slightly when we change the broadcasting antenna. Hmm. This is like having your car begin to turn from the force of blinking your turn signal. Oh, good God. <laughs> yeah, the spacecraft is that delicately balanced. Cool. Yeah, that was interesting. interesting. Yeah, thanks Thanks for that update, Ben. Um, uh, so on Twitter, I've got two tweets this month, and it's two photographs. The first photograph that we got on Twitter is from uh, an old Jodcaster whom you may all be familiar with, uh, Jen Gupta. She's uh, one of the founding members, I think, of the Jodcaster. Certainly was there in the, in the very early days. And Jen has sent us a picture of her wrist because she has a new tattoo on her wrist of the Jodcast logo. Wow. Jen, that's really cool. That's commitment. <laughs> that is commitment. That's amazing. I feel like we should all get one. I feel like we should all have one, but I'm terrified of needles, so I can't do it. I'm afraid of pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a rational fear. Now. <laughs> so yeah, that's, um, uh, well done, Jen. Yeah, no, that's, that's very brave and very dedicated. So yeah, she's got a lovely, it's just, it's just a little black outline of the Jodcast star. Uh, it's very tasteful. It's very, very nice. So, uh, Jod on Jen. That's amazing. Uh, and then we have a beautiful image from Philippe Cahill, the moon this morning in the climb from Heathrow. It's a lovely picture out the window of an airplane of a lovely morning moon. I really like that actually. It came up on my Twitter feed uh, a few days ago and I, I as a person who loves to take pictures out of the windows of planes myself. Because <laughs> I often... Right up your alley. Yeah, no, I loved it. I thought, oh, that's a really nice shot. It's a gorgeous shot. Um, so, so thank you for that, Philippe. Now, if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Or Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. YouTube at youtube.com forward slash jodcast. Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. So thank you to Professor Ray Norris for the interview. The editors were Naomi Asabre Frimprong, Tom Armitage, Claire Bretherton, Ian Evans, and Sao Jin Liu. The producer was Moni Kenson. Until next time, Jod on! Jod on.